0: Hey, it's Leanna. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a second to thank you for listening. The fact that you chose this episode out of the millions of podcast episodes that are out there, that's pretty cool. We'd love it if you left us a review, subscribed, shared us with a friend. And if there's something you want to see us talk about on Hometown Stories, just let us know. Send an email to hometownstories at wdbj7.com. Okay, now let's settle in for today's episode. Encircled in the Blue Ridge Mountains, sandwiched between highways, and crisscrossed with railroad tracks, you'll find Clifton Forge. The railroad town is a few ghosts of the past lingering, to be sure. But in one of these downtown storefronts, the past and the present are brewing something unique for the town's future. Cafe Museo is one of the new kids on the block here. But the work to bring it to life goes back centuries. Is it fair to say that it became an obsession? Oh,
1: I suppose. (laughs) I mean, anyone that's gonna have over 300 coffee grinders in their house
0: needs to have some degree of obsession about them. In this episode of Hometown Stories, a personal tour of the only coffee grinder museum this side of the globe. Driving into Clifton Forge really feels like going back in time. I mean, you can just picture horses and buggies and then Oldsmobiles parked out front of a general store or the theater. But in Judith Savanda's slice of downtown, a step back in time has a smell and a sound and a story. (music) Judith wears glasses with thick, bright red rims and she greets us with a smile at the door. Now, Judith is my kind of person because on this rainy Sunday afternoon, she wastes no time in putting the business of the interview second and a cup of coffee first. A lot of choices on the coffee. Cafe Museo is both a cafe and a museum. While a small bar on the back left of the shop is where you'll put in your order, the front of the store is packed with nothing but coffee grinders, dozens of them, each with a history Judith knows intimately. But yeah, sorry, first coffee.
1: We can just do coffee, I can do espresso. All, the machine does that all and whatever, so I don't even have to be not qualified. Uh,
0: <laughs> <Would> <laughs> flat you? white, we do. Oh, I do love a flat white. flat white, I do flat white for you, Leanna. Judith sets down a mug, presses a few buttons, and the chrome machine on the counter gets to work.
1: Computerized machinery, so it has, does all of the measuring. Um, I can preset it, but uh, once we do that, it's it's got the um, the recipe down, so it'll produce a coffee or a flat white latte, cappuccino, espresso.
0: So you have the oldest of the old and the newest of the new. Yes,
1: yes, in a a way I do. Um, The grinders uh, date back to 1680,
0: and um, I've got them right up to the 1960s. Some of the grinders are hung on the wall. Some are stacked in cubbies, many are in glass cases, and there's ample seating. So here's your flat white. Oh, very smooth. That's really good. Once the coffee is ready, should we sit here since it's nice and cozy? We settle into a corner of the cafe while the rain continues to lightly drizzle outside. And then we start at the beginning. How, how long have you been a coffee drinker? I had my first cup of coffee when I was
1: eight. Eight? Eight, yes. We were traveling cross-country, the family station wagon. And my uh, dad didn't have air conditioning in the car, so we drove the desert, the Mojave Desert, at night. And he was drinking coffee while he's driving, and I was navigating. I love maps. So I I got to drink coffee with him, and I still remember that. And It was this horrible truck stop, you know, really, really strong. But that was it.
0: From there, Judith was hooked and says she was notorious for her coffee drinking habits. Teenage Judith even packed a coffee thermos to school.
1: I grew up with mom using a um, Melita filter pouring. So she was doing pour overs
0: way back. Before it was cool. Yeah. Yeah, before it was cool. But grinders didn't enter the picture until later, 1979 to be exact, when a boss gifted her a coffee grinder as a housewarming gift. It's actually up on the wall at Cafe Museo, just in front of the register. And you
1: know, it came out of a kitchen, and went right up on mine. It'll still grind a beautiful espresso, very fine grind. It's a design that dates back to the 1890s. This one up here is about 1890. These were made in uh, France, 1945 to 1960 or 61 by the Peugeot. Now, I only have six of them, and there are 10 in the series, so I still, I didn't need to shop. But they represent the provinces of France, and after the war, they very proudly put this collection together. Peugeot made bicycles, Um, automobiles, and coffee grinders. They still make probably the best pepper grinders, and they still make coffee grinders, but only one style. (laughs) They, They used to have a variety, but they really only make, this style here still, and it's
0: um, it's pricey, but it's
1: it's a l- little beauty.
0: These ones are topped with a white ceramic box, which holds the beans, and it's fronted with colorful images representing the provinces, mostly colorful pastoral scenes with smiling people. Now that ceramic piece connects to a smaller metal piece, which is the bridge to a clear box for fresh coffee grounds to drop into. And the handle attaches to the front of the metal piece. You turn that to get the mill going. Her collection of the six hung up together makes for a nice display.
1: It started slowly. I really didn't get crazy about them until 1994. Uh, We did have about 15 of them on top of the kitchen cabinets and kind of designed the house so that it could do that.
0: So it started off slow. What then kind of like kicked the collection into high gear?
1: Uh, Information.
0: Judith says she started reading about antique coffee grinders, giving her a window into the past lives of the tools displayed in her kitchen. She points out a huge, and I mean huge, tome of a book written by Dr. Joe McMillan on a shelf in the corner. It's McMillan's Index at Antique Coffee Mills, and it is extensive. That information that I then had in the
1: books told me what I was looking at. You know, was it right? Was it complete? You know, how old is it? Who made it? And those are all the questions that, you know, before you buy something, what's it worth?
0: All of this appealed to Judith, who is an art teacher by trade with a master's in history. And it didn't hurt that her husband dealt in antiques. Plus, she found a group of like-minded individuals in the Association of Coffee Mill Enthusiasts, a group of about 150 to 200 people worldwide who shared Judith's obsession and helped supplement her research.
1: That information really gave me confidence to go out and spend more money.
0: (laughs) Now Judith, who had mostly grown up and lived in Connecticut, began scouring New England antique stores and markets for new collectibles. Then eBay took the hunt to new levels. Is it fair to say that it became an obsession?
1: Oh. I suppose, <laughs> I mean, anyone that's going to have over 300 coffee grinders in their house needs to have some degree of obsession about them. <laughs> and I was obsessed in the research, like I said, who made it, when, do, when, where, look at the patents and all of that engineering part of it. So it wasn't just the object, or the fact that it ground coffee, it came to be, you know, who had used it. And I have I have some that I didn't clean because the handprint was so clearly on the side of some of these wooden box mills that you got to hang on to, and you could see where the thumb had been and how the owner had held it. I left those alone. So it was, you know, really touching the past. So I think if there was an obsession, it was with knowing as much as I could about them.
0: So for many years, her personal collection was just that, personal. And many of her prized possessions were wrapped up in plastic totes, safeguarded in her home. There is an exception to note, however. In 2001, she took them out, dusted them off, snapped photos of them, and wrote her own book. Working with her friend Michael White, they published Antique Coffee Grinders, American, English, and European, a collection of 600 photos displaying the breadth and depth of the history of the grinders with a foreword by none other than Joe McMillan. And that was it. The grinders were a hobby, but mostly sat untouched. Judith retired from teaching, and then her husband retired too, they decided it was time to leave Connecticut. We had friends
1: that were down in this part of the country, um, that in Virginia, and they liked living here. So we came down and took a look and ended up in Covington. And I wanted to get away from the traffic, to tell you the truth. I just, I mean, I'd been stuck in traffic since the age of 16. So it's the first time in my life I haven't had traffic jams. You know, we joke, we got three or four cars out front here and that's a traffic town at yeah. Clifton Forge. It was just more relaxed in all ways. And the natural beauty of these mountains, you know, it's just, it's, it's a wonderful benefit of living
0: here. It wasn't long before the ever-in-motion Judith found herself reemployed teaching at Clifton Forges Art School, and the quiet downtown with the empty storefronts reignited a dream Judith and her husband had first entertained in Connecticut, a place to show off such a mighty collection, which to her knowledge, didn't exist.
1: And no one that has a big collection like this just leaves their door open for people to walk in and look at it. Most of my collector friends are quite secretive and have alarm systems.
0: But um, I just figured that I've got them. If I keep them at home, I'm hoarding. So three years ago, she found a storefront, set up shop, and prepped her opening day to coincide with the 2019 Fall Festival. And I wasn't fully ready.
1: Uh, It was pretty empty. But I did have coffee grinders on the wall, and we could make coffee, and we had biscotti. So that was enough to start with.
0: So how many are actually on display? You said you have 300 total. i lost count. I think I
1: probably have 160 here. There may be more. Having finished
0: our coffee, Judith gives us a tour. Uh, the oldest of them are generally
1: on this side. And um, then I worked my way around. This wall represents up to about 1860. And then that group over there is um, from after the Civil War and running on up to the 1960s.
0: Okay. to be honest, had these grinders been taken out of context, if I'd seen them somewhere else, I honestly might not have known what some of them were.
1: A lot of them that I have, they're in the best condition were probably like the blender you get as a wedding gift and you put on the top shelf and don't use often. Because from like 1890 to 1920 was when the most Decorative mills were made and the big wheels and the ones you think of on the counter. Those big counter ones were at the store and you could go have them grind the coffee and save you the work. And then along came tin. Tin was used for coffee grinders from almost the beginning of the American production. where They used tin for the little hopper uh, to hold the beans and feed it into the grinding gear. The demise of the grinders was, you know, partly blamed on the tin can. Really? Yeah. So, you know, so people could buy ground coffee in a tin can. Or they had the choice of having it ground at the store and into a bag, which I remember from my childhood. That's what people wanted, was it save the work. They don't want to do that extra step at home. Now people are buying grinders and wanting it for the freshness that they get for the coffee. But, um, yeah, the tin is uh,
0: kind of a link through the whole story. On the end with the older varieties, you'll see a few mortar and pestle styles, but the collection is so varied and it comes from all over the world. What's the Um, oldest one that you have? The oldest one is here. She points to a piece that has a wide but short wooden board. At the end is a wooden box with a little drawer and on top of it is a small bowl shaped piece of metal with a handle protruding from the center.
1: This is the Turkish mill and it was found in Vienna they generally call a sits mill, You throw your leg over that to hold it down on a bench and um, turn the uh, the handle, and then the coffee would be dropped in here. This would be used horizontally on a bench, but the the hopper on this is hammered rather than spun or or you know other ways of forming metal. You'd just cut and roll it around. This one's actually hammered from a single piece and highly decorative.
0: Judith says some of the very first grinders were being produced in the Middle East in a variety of different ways. She holds up a thin golden cylindrical mill that comes apart in several pieces.
1: It they went- do come apart so that you can have them in your saddlebags and a Bedouin, you know, or anyone that was mobile would take it with them. Handle goes inside. So this this is, I mean it looks like a pepper mill. Everyone thinks these are pepper mills and they would probably function as such and it's it's carved and I don't know how many miles it has on it, but the metal is worn in here from contact with the wood. So um, it's it's been used quite a bit. So that's one that's uh,
0: kind of exotic. From the Middle East, coffee and its preparation methods eventually made its way over to Europe. In Vienna, they started, they're using Turkish mills, you know, because
1: the, that's who had left them behind when the Ottomans gave up on taking Vienna. And they left behind the beans and the whole coffee culture and Armenian soldiers that they'd conscripted um, and the equipment and the green beans. So it was like the beginning of, of coffee in Vienna. And we know, you know, they were the ones that first put milk in it. Um, dates back to the 1680s. Coffee was in London in 1650. And in Italy, Amsterdam, other cities at about the same time. And... We've all just found different ways to break the bean, do the same thing as all these machines do, and uh, finding better ways to make it to match our method of brewing.
0: Would a typical family have a coffee grinder, or or was this something more for the upper classes?
1: No, most everyone would have access to coffee, and there was enough of it around that it would be perhaps enjoyed at a coffee shop rather than at home. It would be for the men of the family rather than the women. Early on, there was an um, uprising of the women saying that they didn't want to have coffee, they wanted the coffee houses in Europe banned because the men were spending too much time there. And a lot of them also served spirits. <laughs> so, they, And the women were not allowed. So when um, later, the way to solve that was women were allowed um, but it was a good good bit after. The early coffee houses, strictly for men, but they were very democratic That there in, in, in London in particular. You had a coffee house and the richest of the men would come in and the workers would be there and they would have discussions and it was the only place in in London probably that they would be in the same room. Um, so then some of the upper class had their own coffee houses. But at the, for a while there, it was very democratic.
0: Up on the wall, Judith has a mill identical to the one used by George and Martha Washington. This one is made up of a piece of wood, kind of mountain shaped, and it's nailed vertically into the wall. On its protruding front, a round metal cylinder and at the bottom, a little spout for the grounds to escape.
1: Now, this one was England where it got da- damaged by a woodworm which we don't have here, but um, it is marked on the front where it was made. It's the same size. I've compared the two of them. It's identical. It even has the same little cover. Okay, so that was made in England about 1750. Uh, George was using it at Mount Vernon. The ones above were actually made in the States and um, would be about either before or soon after the American Revolution, perhaps during, because uh, it was fought for a number of years. Uh, those were are American-made and very likely were contraband because we were not supposed to be producing anything in this country. We were supposed to be sending raw materials to England. Mm-hmm. And the blacksmiths here said, Oh well, heck, I can make that. So in New England, um, those were produced. And the the blacksmith art is just, to me, it's amazing.
0: So from these sort of more basic looking grinders, the collection shifts to the late 1800s where personalization, style, and color became just as important as function. And these ones fall into that category of would not have known what this was unless someone told me. I honestly might've thought they were like little mini spinning wheels for wool. They're really pretty. In the center, a tall, mostly cylindrical piece with a drawer at the bottom for the grounds, and then on either side, two wheels and a handle protruding from one.
1: This would be the size you'd have in a market. You'd go into the store and get a ground, you'd have that, that's a counter mill. Uh, the one in, in front of it there is too. This is a size that might be in an inn or a hotel, a little fancier. This is an early, like 1870. Uh, It's 1898, and the way you can tell by the decal, the piece of hardware, the nut and bolt, that's how we date these.
0: Is there, is this design or function or both to have like the two? To do wheels? Yeah.
1: The wheel was for momentum. Having two didn't really make a difference. I think that was more for for the eye appeal that it was symmetrical. Um, and it gave them an opportunity to come up with a variety of designs. And this is one that's early, but really, and they're very fragile, very thin, made by, i have to look and see who made that
0: one. Oh, I'm getting old. These ones are rather colorful and Judith has restored some herself. I feel like I have seen these double-wheeled ones and not known what they were. Probably in some movie. We
1: have a little game we play watching TV or movie, old movies, and ah, there's a grinder. Um, and it, we'll share pictures from old movies in our, our newsletter. And, I mean, it's silly, but we have. We've seen them and taking. it's just been a, something that the, the movie makers put in there. And just makes it look like an old kitchen and the cowboy story goes on, but um you no, know, it's a part of this of the set. Um, I'm
0: sure now we'll be seeing them. I am gonna See that's what
1: happened to me. Careful. Now you'll see. I got see that it. first one <laughs> and then I got became aware of them and I went from there.
0: I did ask Judith if she has a favorite, and she thinks on it a while. When you have three hundred total, that's a really big ask. So after showing me a few more, she goes back to the section with the oldest mills. I
1: I think I do have a favorite because I I have the story.
0: She points to one in a glass case, and at first, I don't notice anything particularly striking about it. Then Judith tells me a story. This grinder belonged to a well-known antique dealer back in Connecticut. Judith always admired her stuff. As the dealer was getting ready to retire, she started clearing out her collection, bringing things from home to sell, including this grinder, which had been on her mantle for 30 years. It's a wooden German box mill, but it is far more ornate and a lot heavier than the typical grinder of the era. It has decoration on the back part, the shaped metal. It
1: has hearts. It's got a, what looks like a pig snout here. It's oh, an animal. Yeah and it has initials on it, but there's two sets of initials, but they're in a place such that it wouldn't be the maker. So I, I wondered about it, and I was told that in setting up household, a new couple needed a coffee grinder. And so it was like the wedding gift. So this one was specially made, and when it was new, it was silver. And as I say, it probably weighs 10 pounds, with a lot of iron on that one.
0: Yeah, does it make you think about, like, this was something that people would probably use in their everyday lives? I mean, do you just kind of think about, like, imagine it being in people's households? And, I mean, you mentioned the fingerprints, like, just the life, the life in it, I guess. I
1: know, that's it. And it's like, who were they? You know, did a parent commission it for them? You know, and with great, you know, thought and love and, uh, you know, whoever made it really went out of his way to make it to last and to make it beautiful. So it's... It's the quality of the construction, but it was also the appearance was just, had to have been beautiful. And that was silver, that had to be, it's such a uh, delight to look at. And yes, I wonder who they are.
0: On the other side of the store are the more modern ones, including the grinder that kicked off her entire collection. My personal favorite was an Art Deco style piece with a tall, thin crystal container. And in the cabinets underneath, grinders of unusual sizes. One is a pencil
1: sharpener. funny. That's from the 1970s, actually. Uh, it's a Ted Arnold. They, they do work as a pencil sharpener. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have one in the back there with the holes in the top. That's so you can hear the music. It's a little music Aww. box. It's a German piece. And the little tiny copper one in the front there is a tape measure.
0: And it wouldn't be a trip to a museum without a little hands-on learning. Yeah, let me get some beans. Judith has a medium-sized green mill mounted to a table, the perfect height to give grinding a go. To
1: differentiate themselves, they painted them green. They call them Universal, or they'd have other names on them. The Universal was more their utility name, from what I can see. So there's no decoration, just the gold paint there and the decal. This is the workhorse, the number 11. And it's not difficult to turn it. There's a ball bearing in there. And this is, you know, pretty good. 1910. That ball bearing was added. It makes it run smooth. And we've got a nice Batch of ground coffee, nice. and that's uh, that's about right for a um, pour over. For now, this is where Judith's collection ends. I even don't go on eBay that often. I'm putting my energies more into this creation, not the creation of the collection, but the creation of the place, and you know,
0: creating more more
1: welcome for people to come in.
0: It seems to me like this coffee shop is kind of the combination of, of your history degree, your yeah. art degree, your coffee enthusiasm. Like, it's all wrapped up in one. Yeah. I mean, and I don't like people at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and very social. Did you ever think, having that first cup of coffee with your dad, did you ever imagine that? No. This is... No. I think back then I wanted to be a
1: cowboy. You uh, know, <laughs> I was eight years old. It was the 50s. The cowboy movies were the thing. But I was... Never, never even occurred to me.
0: Now celebrating Cafe Museo's third year in business, Judith is still working to expand her dining options and to scheduling bands and spoken word performances for the store. For her, it's a bit of a triumph after everything we've been through the last couple of years and a way for her to surround herself with the things that she loves the most, sharing it with the world and most definitely not hoarding. What has been the greatest surprise to you about this whole venture? (laughs) How busy I can get on a Sunday was a big
1: surprise, (laughs) I'll tell you. This is not a typical Sunday. The, oh boy. In a way, I was surprised that I survived with the pandemic and um, the money was tough. But because I'm retired, I have a pension. And because I'm married, my husband's paying the mortgage, so I didn't have the problems that most young entrepreneurs would have, of having to take care of the kids and the bills and the house and everything with that business as the income. So I didn't have to live off the money we made here. I wouldn't be here if I had. Um, but we did we did get through it, and you know, and have grown. So I think we're going to make it. <laughs>
0: Thank you for sharing your collection. Yeah. I hope you can get enough
1: out of that, Ben.
0: Plenty. Now yeah, you, now you get to work. <laughs> Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was produced by me, Leanna Scaccetti, and edited by Ben Roquelme. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.